Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest is Danny Adamaitis. Danny is a principal information security engineer at the Black Lotus Labs at Lumen Technologies. Danny, that's a mouthful. Uh, let's start right there. What is the Black Lotus Labs at Lumen Technologies? Give me a sense of what you guys do. Sure. So we work for a company called Lumen Technologies. Um, while some people might not be familiar with Lumen Technologies, um, it's kind of this overarching term for a number of um, our transition into the technology space. Um, so this is comprised of Level 3, CenturyLink, Quest, Savvis, um, all these big name companies you've probably heard of before. And then what we do at Blackwell's Lab is we sort of um, correlate all of the different telemetry we can get to better protect our corporate network and our customers. And we try to help uncover some of these more evasive threat actors that you might not be able to detect if you're looking at a single source of telemetry. What kind of telemetry you guys have access to? Because I, I, one, of, one of the things I don't think people realize is that Lumen Technologies is the uh, new name for a company that was called CenturyLink, yep. which old school folks recognize as like the people who ran the backbone of the internet. So I get a sense that the data that you have access to and the, the, the ability to, to do the discoveries that you guys are constantly doing, give me a sense of what kind of data you're looking at. Yes. So one of the things that people predominantly think about when they think about CenturyLink and, you know, our former level three is things like our internet backbone. Um, and by monitoring things like our internet backbone and our internet exchange points from our ASN 3356, uh, we're able to get some sampled net flow on things to traverse our network. Um, so right now, I believe we're collecting something like 200 billion net flow sessions per day. Uh, we also have our level three DNS resolvers. They give us about 1 billion DNS resolutions per day. Uh, we have a managed firewall portfolio. We have a DDoS solution. We have cloud edge compute. Uh, we have SASE. We have all of those wonderful things. And uh, we also just have the slew of routers, which you know we're probably going to get into in a couple of minutes. And, and your team is like the threat intel team within uh, Lumen Technologies. Where, where does your data go? Like what, 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 is the, what are you feeding to protect? So our kind of goal is to sort of feed the entire Lumen security portfolio. Um, so again, kind of, I'm from away from Cisco Talos, it's kind of that same mentality where we have this one kind of core team. And then the idea is that helps kind of protect everyone. Uh, we do offer, again, things like the DDoS, the SASE, the, uh, we have a, a feed called Rapid Threat Defense. Um, and what this does is it kind of enables us to better protect some of our customers. And one of the things that I really enjoy about working here at Lumen is we actually have the ability to do things like no routing C2s. Um, so if we see a malicious IP address, such as a command and control server, we can actually no route that across our backbone. And that allows us to provide protection to our customers with a zero touch interaction, which is really kind of special because you don't have to necessarily be a firewall customer or you know, be a sassy customer. You just have to be part of the ecosystem and in order for you to get that kind of protection to be protected against this sort of threat. Right. And Danny, we're talking today because you guys just announced the discovery of this KV botnet, which is a small home office, small office, home office, uh, router botnet that you say is forming a covert data transfer network for advanced threat actors that we now know has been linked to this Volt Typhoon group, this Chinese internet, uh, this Chinese APT group that, been, that had been documented by Microsoft previously. Uh, can you give me a, like, uh, give me a, a high level overview of what the KV, KV botnet is. And then I want to dig into how you discovered it and like, you know, some of the intricacies of it. So KV botnet is this botnet that is comprised of end of life Soho routers and firewall devices. Um, so we believe that there is this 
Chinese threat actor that is compromising hundreds, if not you know, thousands of devices across the internet for the purposes of creating this kind of covert infrastructure. This allows them to operate, I want to say across the internet while averting a lot of the traditional network-based detections. So a lot of times when, you know, candidly, we talk to customers and we talk about threats from China, Russia, Iran, we typically hear things like, don't worry, we block the Chinese ASNs, so we're protected. We don't have to worry about this. Uh, and while that might be a good first step, that's not the last step. If you're using this covert network and you're coming from a router in the same country, potentially even the same city, it allows you to sort of, you know, skirt those sorts of traditional tricks. Uh, detections. You, you mentioned end-of-life uh, routers. Give me a, uh, uh, help me understand what that means. These are forgotten devices that are, is this, does this mean this botnet is going to be impossible to kill or largely, you know, very, very, very difficult to mitigate? When you say end-of-life and what kind of products are we talking about? So we saw at least a couple different routers or different types of models. Um, so thanks for your first part. We were seeing things like Netgear Pro Safe personal firewalls. We were seeing DryTech Viger routers. We were seeing some of these old Cisco RV320s. Um, all of these devices have been end of life. I believe, I think like the Netgear Pro Safe was end of life in 2020 and 2017. Uh, so what that means is the manufacturer themselves is no longer issuing patches or security mitigations for these products. However, they can't tell people not to use a product that they already acquired. So right now, a lot of these things are just kind of living out there in the internet, and they're pretty much forgotten about. And that's kind of the, I want to say, ominous thing about this. It's that part of the internet that everyone seemed to have forgotten about that's coming back to haunt us now. Um, they're able to kind of use these things because they still work. And again, this is one of those things where I'll even comment, you know, kudos to Netgear and Cisco. These things are still running almost six or seven years after they were supposed to. But the thing is, they're still running and that still allows this access vector for threat actors to use these things, even if, you know, no one else seems to know that they're out there. And in many cases, they are sitting there with known vulnerabilities for which there are known exploits and there are no patches or will never be patches available for those things. So in, in many respects, they're just they're they're like dual use devices in an organ in, in organizations, right? Correct. Um, the KV botnet, how did you, give me a sense of how you found this. Did you go looking for this? Was this an accidental discovery? Did you have, uh, artifacts from previous IOCs to help you? Give me a sense of how you found this. So, uh, sex we're all kind of Franks here. This was actually a bit of an oopsie daisy. Um, if you guys recall, and I believe you do, Ryan, uh, if you were at labs at the first LabsCon, uh, we presented on a activity cluster that we are calling Zero Rat. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, we have a blog on our website. You guys can view for free. Yeah, I put it in the show notes, yep. but you can give me a little bit of what Zuo Rat is. Uh, the super quick version is we found an advanced threat actor that was targeting routers and some of the functionality. And it was targeting these routers. And the two things that really stood out to me is that this, this uh, router had the capability to perform DNS and HTTP hijacking. And the part that just enamored me was if we can find where you're doing this HTTP hijacking, we could potentially find some sort of dedicated DPS that could lead to things like browser-based exploits. And when you're doing this kind of advanced operation, I'm assuming there was going to be an O-Day. Uh, so I kind of made it my life's mission for a couple of months to try to find that HTTP hijack server. Um, so once I kind of started looking at all of these infected routers, I was trying really hard to see if I could find where they were redirecting the signal to. 
Um, and we actually found one router that we now assess had a cohabitation. Um, it was actually kind of pointing towards this one router in, I believe it was Volkshire, that had a self-signed certificate. And when we started digging into it in our telemetry, we saw it was only receiving connections from Cisco RB320s and 325s. Uh, which kind of led us to believe we were really onto something. So that's an instant red flag. When you say you use words like cohabitation, it sounds fancy and nice, but that's basically you're saying it's uh, infected by multiple folks. And is that common to see that in those environments? It's extremely common. Um, We even kind of hit on this in our report. When KV Botnet actually gets on the device, it initially actually looks for two other pieces of malware and it tries to actively kill them. Uh, the other thing we kind of talk about is once the KV botnet gets on the router, it actually collects a list of file names and it collects, I think, something like 256 unique file names. And then it picks one randomly to then run as that file name on the process. So that way other botnets are having a harder time trying to kill it while it's operating on those systems. And uh, that kind of that kind of turf war is commonplace. It's extremely common. And again, this is one of those things that we've been kind of, you know, hitting on is that these devices are turning into, it's almost like a land grab, if you kind of think of this, where they're all fighting for access to these because it's such a target-rich environment. And still has available resources for everyone to use it? I mean, why, why, why are, and you mentioned target-rich, but why is it, is it, why is it so powerful? Why, why go to this level when there are... I, I think it provides a unique visibility standpoint where if you are there's only going to be one edge router hanging off of a high value network so if you can get on that one and deploy again potentially something like a packet capture tool it allows you to get that unique insight that you just couldn't get elsewhere um, and again I, we kind of talked about this with another report we did earlier last year called hey this rat they were using this and they were almost targeting just a small number of routers every week and the idea was if this was a super interesting target, they would deploy a packet capture capability. And if it wasn't, they would accept something like a SOX5 proxy, and then they would add this as part of their own covert infrastructure to redirect some signals. Um, and again, having that capability to kind of covertly operate in the United States is, is extremely attractive to some of these very advanced threat actors, which is why we're seeing this from the Chinese. Um, I believe it was a couple of months ago we saw this from a suspected Russian threat actor using some of the Cisco stuff. It, it's just very, it, it's just where they all kind of want to be right now. What's the size of this botnet, the specific KV botnet that you're looking at? And, uh, you know, because our mainstream reporting on botnets is that they compromise these massive, massive, massive groups of things and then use the resources for a variety of different things. In this case, you're, you're, you're saying your report says they've deliberately kept it small for a variety of reasons. When you say, how small are we talking about? And talk a little bit about that angle. So we saw this thing predominantly operate, we're going to say around like a hundred bucks. And again, this is kind of our best wag because you know we don't have perfect visibility. You know, right, we right. don't have the eye of Sauron. Um, so what we are seeing is they're kind of intentionally keeping this small because again, if you start going too big too quickly, you can actually generate alerts. Uh, there's you know a whole bunch of people who are sending up honeypucks across the internet. We have things like gray noise that are looking for active exploitation of this stuff. If you try to go too loud too quickly, you're getting generate alerts. But if you're able to take a much more targeted approach and you're only hitting a small number of devices every single week, it allows you that capability to operate in that space without setting off too many alarms 
And at the end of the day, you don't need 10,000 bucks to kind of operate this sort of infrastructure. You really only need probably a hundred, couple hundred, because you're just trying to kind of create a unique path into your target network and then a secondary path out. Right. And that's the, that's the primary use when you talk about COVID data, data transfer is this, this entry in and out. Um, can you, two things, can you talk a little bit about where, who have you seen this bot communicating with? Like where are some of the targets that would raise eyebrows or there? Uh, and are we, st- are, do we see these types of, uh, unpatched, outdated routers in enterprise organizations as well and in target organizations as well? So we have seen a lot of activity, specifically around the island of Guam. Um, From earlier this year, uh, in our report, we kind of saw interactions with, I believe, two two U.S.-based telecommunications, one ISP and one territorial government entity. Um, so again, this kind of aligns very nicely with some of the reporting from our counterparts at Microsoft, um, but we believe that does not entail the entirety of the botnet. That is just kind of where, you know, we kind of had better visibility, if you will. Right. Um, we are kind of seeing a lot of these devices are just kind of living kind of out there in the ethos. Um, we kind of talked about this before. There's some entities that are really surprising that are running this. Like there was one... Uh, I want to say Cisco device that was associated with like a U.S. judicial organization that, again, kind of didn't make sense to me. And then we're seeing a whole bunch of other kind of small, medium-sized businesses where we would kind of expect someone to configure these sorts of routers because it has that high resiliency and they can kind of install it, forget about it, and move on with their life. Um, and this is kind of where the, I want to say, unique problem comes in where when you have this kind of malware, this is where we kind of have to start to break apart the capability versus the intent. So when you have this sort of malware on there, we saw the embedded functionality that would allow them to send commands, to spawn a remote shell, to interact with that host, and potentially try to move laterally, download additional files. Um, so that capability does exist, but we just don't really know if they have the intent to do that or if the intent was just to kind of create this, you know, kind of covert highway, if you will, where it allows them to kind of send stuff all around the world without anyone else noticing. And you have no doubt at all that this is connected to full typhoon and connected to the report that Microsoft issued around some critical infrastructure targets in Guam being compromised uh, in what they believe is a precursor to, you know, some sort of future conflict, uh, uh, capabilities for some sort of future conflict. What makes you so sure that this is definitely overlapping with full typhoon? So... We believe that, again, at least one of the victims that they were identifying is one of the victims that we also identified. Um, the other kind of caveat I'll make is that while we have seen some victimologies align with Bull Typhoon, this is not a one-to-one mapping. Right, um, right. So this is not everything, you know, everything the Bull Typhoon does is everything KV Botnet. We think this is just kind of some other avenue that they have at their disposal. Um, we even kind of hit on this in their report at the very bottom. We actually saw a couple... Fortinet devices interacting with one of the payload servers that didn't really seem to align with traditional bull typhoon targeting, which would suggest that, again, the KV botnet might also be, you know, potentially supporting other typhoons that are out there or other storm groups. And there's been some recent changes that you've observed. The addition of some IP cameras, some compromised cameras within the botnet, uh, kind of like a remodeling of the infrastructure of the botnet. And one of the things you mentioned in the report is that you believed it could be a precursor to some increased activity over this upcoming holiday season. What do you mean by that? And what can, like, help me understand what can an organization do today 
to potentially try to figure out if I'm interacting with these bots, if 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 I have uh, this Soho network, uh, a, a router, a vulnerable router in my network. Give me a sense of what you think folks can do with the information you provided over this holiday season. Sure. <clears throat> so the first thing I'd like to hand was kind of that that precursor thing. Um, so we have observed previously what we were calling the JDY cluster used the same set of um, infrastructure for almost 18 months. And then starting in mid-November of 2023, we saw them start to rotate that. Um, and again, this has just kind of struck us as odd of why would you keep something operating for 18 months and all of a sudden start to rotate that. About a week later, we saw that they started pivoting from things like the pro saves to these things called the access IP cameras. Um, and again, this is one of those things where we're now starting to kind of see that shift in their modus operandi, where now they're going after these other devices. And when we kind of start looking at things like internet scan data, there was only about 6,000 census. There was about 6,000 Nectar Pro saves and census. There was 45,000 access cameras that were exposed to the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so to us, it kind of looked like they're starting to kind of shift and kind of creating a larger network or potentially having more hot points. Um, we also then kind of started looking at historical trending. And as we kind of mentioned before, predominantly, we saw the number of box communicating per month was a little bit less than 100. If we looked at November of 2022, we actually saw over 400 box. That again, we kind of suspect was them kind of ramping up these operations to have that infrastructure they needed to then operate during the month of December, when a lot of the Western countries, particularly the United States, tend to be a little bit short-staffed. People are taking holidays for Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's. You know, they don't tend to be in the office, so they're trying to kind of take advantage of that downtime. Um, so again, kind of given the totality of all this evidence and with us seeing them kind of ramping up operations, uh, like I, said, I think we even saw stuff as early as December 5th. We saw another wave of almost like 200 devices. This kind of felt like to us, like they were starting to modify their infrastructure and they were beginning that ramp-up period again. So this is kind of why we were trying to go a little bit more urgently there um, to try to kind of include, first off, the information, let them know, and secondly, try to hedge this off of the past so that way we can all actually have Christmas this year, which is you know, one of my favorite holidays, and I don't have to work like we did a couple of years ago with SolarWinds. One of the report, the sections of the report is this predefined commands. You talk about three groups of commands. Is there anything there? Can talk a little bit about that and the peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure that's 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 been set up and 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 some of the ominous parts of that. Yep. And is there anything there that can be used as as indicators, as uh, hunting indicators for a defender? Yes. So. <clears throat> Uh, the first part is the, the command structure. So one of the other things that was really unique about this particular botnet as compared to others is when most people think of these bots, they think of your traditional reverse TCP shell of I have an agent, this agent beacons back to my C2 at some predefined interval, and it says, hi, I'm still alive, please send me a command. One of the unique things about KV botnet is while it has that capability, it also has the capability to open up a port and have an active listener. So this means that if you were a secondary bot, you can still send a command to the other bot and kind of start to build these tunnels or send them commands. So we believe this was kind of a resiliency factor where even if the primary C2 was taken offline, they could still do bot-to-bot -bot communications and it wouldn't necessarily impede the ability of the botnet to operate. It would make it a little bit more tricky and a little bit more difficult but it wouldn't necessarily kill the botnet the same way it would if you just took out the C2 for a more traditional one. Um, in terms of, oh, 
go ahead. No, no, no. I want to. Is there anything yeah. in there? Is there anything in there that can be used as as hunting guidance for a defender? So right now, it's just it is extremely difficult to detect when this thing is infected because it doesn't leave a notable signature. Um, there is no way that you know I can just say scan this particular port, and if you get a response, it's infected. Um, the only real thing you could do is try to. First off, know your own inventory and your own assets. Um, so if you have, I want to say every organization, every house has some sort of home router. What is your home router? What is the last time it was updated? Is it end of life? You know, just kind of having that initial thing we we're talking about before about, you know, right. just because you have that stuff, that doesn't mean they're going to go after you, but you're presenting an opportunity for them too. So I would just encourage people to kind of keep an eye on that. Um, the second thing is just kind of, unfortunately, doing the traditional things that we are all talking about doing that no one ever seems to want to do. Looking for things like, you know, um, a WAF or a firewall. Looking for things like, why is all of a sudden one of my perimeter devices communicating with this randomly Soho device in another part of the country that it normally doesn't interact with? Looking for large data transfers. Um, kind of doing some interjoins in your Splunk dashboard between what is the remote IP address and what is that model? Um, again, kind of setting up all of those traditional things that we should be doing, but just seems to always kind of seem to fall to the priority list for things we're going to work on tomorrow. Are there are there tools, open source or otherwise, available to help automate a lot of that? Or what, the stuff you just described, is that a, just a whole series of manual tasks? So there is some integrations, I believe, if you have like a good SOAR or uh, an orchestration tool. Um, again, we kind of use Splunk here, so right. we can use things like you can plug in your census keys, your Shodan keys. I think Binary Edge offers a comparable service. Um, again, pick your favorite one. They're, they're all pretty good about things like that, but it is still going to be a little bit of a manual yeah. process to go through that. And then, of course, monitoring your perimeter devices, which is something that has just been a theme throughout this entire year with things like Fortinet devices, Citrix devices, Confluence devices. I mean, it's right. just been an onslaught to try to monitor those devices, setting up that proper network segmentation, um, and just kind of doing your hardening and resiliency to make sure that you know, you're able to better detect the stuff when it happens, because it's going to happen. I got to be honest with you, Danny, this feels like a helpless place though, where that weak spot and that ecosystem of unpatched and life devices, unmanaged, nobody sees it. It kind of just sits there and hums along. And like you said, people cohabitate in multiple adversaries on there fighting among each other. Unfixable, it feels to me, it feels helpless, right? Um, is there a way we can somehow mitigate that if, if i'm an enterprise organization i want to mitigate that risk or is that something i just have to put it in my risk management system and say okay i'm, I'm just going to absorb that risk because it's something that i'll never get to fix i would argue knowing is half the battle so again well i think we've talked about things like this before and more nebulous space and saying yes you know we should be aware of these devices and we should be doing things uh, unfortunately, as you know, it doesn't become real until there's a report like this. It kind of kicks people in the face. Um, and again, there is tons of these end-of-life devices out there. You know, we're, we're kind of picking on these three vendors, but it's not exclusive to them. Uh, this is just something where, again, you kind of just have to build up that network resiliency. You have to kind of monitor for these sorts of connections. And unfortunately, this is not a problem that's going to go away. At um, all. This, and this is kind of the issue is that we always hear people talking about secure by design and recompiling things in Rust. And that's great. I really believe that. 
The problem is that you still have these devices online from 10 years ago. So how does that help with all the stuff that's already out there? I, well, one thing I wanted to get back just into a little bit of the nitty gritty of the botnet was uh, a call out on the hands-on keyboard exploitation component of it, which is, 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 is um, not typical. Uh, what have you seen here and how have you been able to piece it together that there's actually people uh, uh, doing some manual things? Yes. So traditionally, when we see some of these botnets uh, that we've reported upon, they kind of have more of an automated script where they're continuously kind of exploiting devices. And we kind of talked about this before. The name of the game is getting as many bugs as you can as fast as you can in some sort of automated fashion. Uh, when we actually look at the command and control notes associated with this botnet, we tend to see these operations occur in these very small predefined windows. So we'll see that over the course of a week, there might be two or three windows. And in that window, it'd be about somewhere between, you know, one to one hour, maybe even a little bit less, where all of a sudden we'll see them kind of become operational. They'll spin this bot up. They'll begin to exploit these devices. They catch, you know, they delivered the exploit. They get some sort of payload back. We see the callback and then they shut it down. And it's very kind of the small thing where to us, this indicates that this is a small operation being performed by an actual human. Um, you know, you can't automate a script to just turn up for one hour at a time, perform some of this exploitation, and then just turn back down. That this isn't something where they're, you know, kind of leaving everything out there for a long time. Um, but one of the unique uh, opportunities is that when you're doing these sorts of operations and you're able to kind of gather telemetry for a couple of months, you can start to build a really accurate heat map. And you can kind of see, well, when is this operator typically occurring? Is there certain days? Is there times? Um, and we were able to actually kind of create this really unique heat map. Um, and then one of the really ironic correlations is that when you chart it from UTC back to China Central, it appears to start at nine o'clock China Central time. It's so weird. It's almost like the people who are doing this might be based in China. Um, and you can kind of even see where they're operating on that nine to five schedule for six days a week. And we kind of see a low in operations on Sunday. So again, it, it kind of lets us know that this is, again, almost certainly someone who's in China or operating in China hours. Um, and then the other call I'll make is that this is telemetry that was gathered, I think, over 16 months. So this isn't someone, you know, you know, playing adversarial emulation for a week or two. If you're going to operate in that time zone for 16 months straight, it's pretty certain that you're actually there or you have the, a lot of dedicated infrastructure in time. If this thing has borrowed into critical infrastructure in the U.S. in places, in multiple places, like Mandiant has publicly said, Microsoft has publicly said, why haven't there been a disinfection script or a bot removal tool or something proactively sent out by, say, U.S. government through uh, Justice Department, FBI, whatever. Is, it, is that a possibility? Is there a, a possibility to do a malware removal tool to kill this botnet? So we can, we can create a uh, botnet removal tool, but this one is a little bit harder. Um, so again, when we were kind of looking at things like Hafnium in the past, they tended to kind of have a more static location, where as we kind of alluded to earlier in this podcast, it's generating one of 256 unique file names that are unique to each individual routering system and firewall. So it's possible, but it becomes much more difficult to do those sorts of things. Uh, we also kind of saw some, I want to say, predefined functionality where they would actually limit the capability of other people operating on that script. Um, 
So when we looked at this, they were actually setting up some parameters to say, unless you're running as the malware itself, you can't run things like curl, wget, lua, tftp. They were actually trying really hard to kind of solidify their own access and prevent other people from doing those sorts of things. Another thing you mentioned here is that all the tooling appear to reside completely in memory and making yes. this detection extremely difficult. This is this is kind of what we're seeing out of Chinese threat actors, right? This kind of use of in-memory versus different uh, uh, different characteristic from, say, the Russian threat actors. Uh, talk a little bit about what that discovery is and what it means. Yes. So we're seeing a lot of these Chinese actors appear to prefer to reside completely in memory. So what is the advantage and disadvantage of that from a threat actor's perspective? So if you're running in memory, what we actually saw in this case is they would delete the file from disk. So even if you know someone like me were to come along and try to do manual inspection of this device, if there's no file on disk, it becomes a lot more difficult to try to actually carve out the malware sample itself. Um, at that point in time, the alternative is to run something like a Lime program or you know some sort of memory analysis tool where you're basically now copying out the memory from the actual router, and then you have to kind of carve out the payload that way. Um, obviously, it's possible, but it becomes much more difficult than just saying, hey, CP from this you know remote router to my system. Um, and again, the idea is that it just complicates the analysis. And even when you're talking about things like um, Windows stations or Linux stations, um, doing memory analysis is really hard because, again, it's so dynamic and it's so ephemeral. And if you mess it up too much, you can actually, you know, cause performance issues and potentially impact the device itself. Um, this is, again, kind of contrasting with what we've seen from some of, I want to say, the Russian-based botnets. Um, I'm thinking about things like Psychops Blink or VPN Filter, where their goal was to just kind of burrow down into the firmware. And the idea was, you know, they're just going to basically ingratiate themselves within the silicone to the point where you just can't get rid of them if you yeah. wanted to. Um, so again, both very similar. You know, they, they both are able to effectively operate. It's just, you know, they have different mentalities for how they want to do that. And lastly, because we're running out of time, I want to help, help, help a network defender. I've read your report. I've listened to this podcast. I go back to my network. What should I go immediately start looking for? Is there, are there like data transfers out of the network that go into certain IP addresses that I can look for? Like, help me understand what is like the ultimate priority for me right now as I go back, having heard about this. So in my mind, if I was a consultant for a day and they said, I'm worried about something like Volt Typhoon, I would actually go back to my systems and I would look at the DHS advisory and I would start with things like the domain controller. If we know that Bull Typhoon is going to go after some of these systems, in my mind, while the covert network is interesting, the covert network itself is ephemeral. It could be, again, a dry tech today, right, a right. pro safe tomorrow. It could be a Zyxel. But the thing is, the goal is they still want to get access to my network, they're going to want to get some access to my domain controller. And by going after those products, they're going to have to generate some sort of log. Do you guys have logging on your domain controllers? Are you looking for you know access to those sorts of things? Are you looking for the living off the land binaries? Are we monitoring for things like Impacket? Um, are we looking for web shells? These are the sorts of things that, in my mind, it becomes a little bit easier that if you know they're going to go after these handful of systems, start with those handful of systems. Don't necessarily start by looking at, is there going to be large data transfers across the internet? Right, right. Um, right. 
if you have a big team and you have the capability, I think that's great. But again, it's hard to say that to an organization that might only have one or two security people. That seems a, a bit like a fool's errand. Does rebooting, would, does rebooting yeah. these infected routers uh, block uh, 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 infection? I mean, they're probably going to be reinfected anyway, but getting into some sort of strategy to reboot your routers on a regular rotating basis might be some sort of yes. mitigation technique. So that is the nice thing about residing in memory. Uh, there is no persistence mechanism that we are able to detect. So okay. by kind of rebooting the router, um, again, at some point in fashion, it would actually remove all of the malware from the system. Um, so again, that's just kind of a quick and easy thing of, you know, we kind of talked about this with like eating ZooRAM too, <laughs> just unplugging your router, counting to five and plugging it back in might actually be the remediation. Now, oh, again, man. of course they can't come back, but, that is something that, again, I think I could tell my mother to do. Of, hey, just you know, unplug your router, count to five, and plug it back in. And that's something that you know we can expect a reasonable person to accomplish. What happens next? Are you able to uh, monitor this, watch activity? Like, what is, what is the next stage of this research for you? So I think we're curious to see how the actor reacts to this publication. Because um, we've seen. We've seen in the past the Microsoft report. We've seen some changes in, in, in activity based on previous public disclosures, right? Yes. Uh, I think it was actually um, some counterparts from Microsoft to CyberWarCon talk about this. Exactly. Um, I'm going to be honest. I don't think Bull Tabling is going to stop because we published a report. So the idea is how do we rediscover that signal? Is it through this particular botnet? Is it through some other, I want to say, Soho-based operation? Is it through the network? Um, so again, we're going to continue to pursue the Volt Typhoon actors. We're going to continue to pursue these adversaries who are trying to infect, uh, you know, devices that are traversing the Lumen backbone. And we're just going to see where we can kind of pick them back up. Danny Adamaitis, Principal Information Security Engineer in the Black Lotus Labs team at Lumen Technologies. Thank you very much, Danny. Appreciate it.